Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Muhammad is a hardened shepherd living in Tunisia with his wife and two sons. Muhammad is deeply shaken when his oldest son, Malik, returns home after a journey with a mysterious new wife. Tensions between the father and son rises over three days until they reach a breaking point. And that is the backstory behind this film called Brotherhood. It has been nominated for an Academy Award in the 2020 live action short program. And we're joined today by the director and the writer of Brotherhood, and that would be Miriam Jobert. Miriam, welcome to Film School Radio. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for for this wonderful, dramatic film that I felt was so nuanced and so well done, and I'm I'm just thrilled to be able to talk to you about oh, it. Thank you so where, much. Yeah, where, I'd be happy to answer any of your questions. Yeah, where where did this the idea for the story come from? So the idea for the film is uh, pretty funny and interesting because it started in 2016. Um, I did a road trip. So my parents are Tunisian, and in 2016 I wanted to do a road trip in the north of Tunisia to discover a bit more of my roots. And um, on one of the days of the trip, I encountered Malik and Shekhar, the two older brothers in the film on the side of the road. Um, And they were just leading their, their sheep, and I was immediately struck by their faces, which... When you watch the film, you realize why I'm saying this. They have these very unique faces with red hair and lots of freckles. And there's just something really powerful and mysterious about the look in their eyes and the landscape. And at the time, I just wanted to take their photo, but they said no. So I drove away, (laughs) but I definitely kept thinking about them because, like I said, it was such a, it's almost like a love at first sight moment. And uh, I learned that a lot of men from that region have gone to Syria. Over the next year and a half, I thought about, you know, writing a story. I ended up writing the script, which is focused on the return of one of the young men. And I knew that I wanted the brothers to act in the film. So a year and a half later, I went looking for them. And I basically had to go from village to village asking strangers if they knew any red-headed brothers with sheep. And luckily, after a full day of searching... Uh, we managed to find their house, and I landed on their doorstep with the script, and I asked them if they would act in the film. And thankfully, you know, they said no to the photo, but they said yes to being part of the film. <laughs> well, that's a huge leap, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I think obviously they trusted you. Obviously, they had some faith not only in you as a as a film director, filmmaker, but uh, this is a this is a story that's nuanced. It's kind of, it's a little bit tricky. It's a, there's a, there are some things that require some uh, finesse in, in not only yeah. in telling the story, but also in creating the characters. I kind of gave the broad outline of the tension between the father and the son, Muhammad and Malik. But I, I do you, how much of this do you want to talk about it? Cause I don't want to give away a lot uh, and I'll leave it to your discretion to describe sort of the context of the story here. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, I'm, I can definitely share the context of the story because I don't feel like 
that is the main thematics or the main important thing I want people to get out of the film. But in in the story, Malik is returning home from Syria, and he brings with him a wife who wears a niqab. And for the father, Muhammad, this is a huge shock, and he's deeply uncomfortable. But the issue within their relationship is that there's no communication. So because there's no communication or exchange, Muhammad assumes and judges his son immediately. But as the film unfolds, you realize that he misjudges his son, and this kind of leads to tragic consequences in the film. And the story is really about transformation, and the story is about how somebody can be looking at the world in a very rigid, this is right, this is wrong, uh, moral landscape, but discovers as the film goes through that life is obviously more complex and nuanced. And if there's no communication, there's no understanding. One of the things that I felt watching the film that breaking some some of the stereotypes and, you know, I will um, embrace this idea for that I've had, I have, and I think a lot of other people do, is that people in the Arab world are monolithic in their outlook and on their perspective of, you know, all kinds of issues that I think we make assumptions about. And I think this film in in a very dramatic way, in a very powerful way, it blows that up in, in, in ways, uh, the assumptions about the the sort of the political zeitgeist and that the Tunisians are very different than people who live in Syria or in Lebanon or, or in Egypt. That this, and I, again, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I think this is something that the film really is, it's the, one of the elements in the film that truly uh, I felt was just a, a very powerful. Am I overstating some of what I'm Well, saying? I mean, I think, I, I actually don't think Tunisians are super different from people living in Lebanon or Syria, but I feel that the the image that the general public in the West is exposed to is more the small percentage of extremists, you know, right. religious extremism or that. Whereas the general public, I think, as you see in the family in my film, you know, the father is very uncomfortable to have, you know, the Syrian wife wearing a niqab. And I think I heard a lot of audience being surprised to see this Arab father, Arab Muslim father, taking issue with the niqab. I think the assumption is the extreme is the general perspective or belief in the Arab Muslim community, but it's not. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely would say, you know, my experience growing up in, you know, I grew up in the U.S., but I also grew up in Tunisia when I was young, you know, in terms of the outlook and stuff, it's liberal. And I think the majority of the Arab world is as such. Um, but the perspective that we're getting in the U.S. or North America or Europe is a very minute perspective. Right. And you have done a much, much better job of, of explaining what I was trying to say, that there would be this level of discomfort with the woman showing up in the... With a niqab, yes. Yeah, I mean, I think for, at least this is an interesting thing for Tunisian, in Tunisian society, you know, we had a revolution in 2011. Right. Before the revolution, there were no, you would never see niqabs in Tunisia. After the revolution, there was a, a wave of women starting to wear the niqab, 
But over time, that has dwindled. Over the past, yeah, you know, 10 years, it has also dwindled. I think it's just similar to America. I think when there's moments of political turmoil or social unrest, people tend to lean on religion, which is what we're seeing in the U.S. as well. Right. Um, it was the same in Tunisia. After the revolution, there was a bit of what is going to happen to us as a country, and people then, you know, you know, would lean on religion, but over time, it has decreased. So there's a lot of similarities, I find, in what's happening now in the U.S. with what happened in Tunisia after the revolution. Right. And uh, just to put an, an, another name on it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Tunisia is the is where the so-called Arab Spring began, yes. right? So just for yeah. people who are, when you say revolution, yeah, the Arab Spring as we Started. came to know it in the West. No, no, that's, <laughs> it, it came to know it in the West, and it, as it swept across much of the, the Arab world, was what came about because, as I recall, a vendor was killed um, yeah. in a marketplace, uh, and, and it started... He actually in, committed, the vendor was frustrated with the bureaucracy, and he actually lit himself on fire. Okay. And this led to a lot of protests, and it kind of grew into the revolution. And the dictator left, you know, relatively quickly within the month right. of protests. The dictator left, yeah. and we have set up since the democracy. And as any new democracy, obviously there's been complications, but yeah. Tunisia has been, the, I, th I believe, the most successful revolution because it came about naturally. The people, you know, the Tunisian people led this revolution, right. whereas right. when there was a domino effect into other nations, international powers started interfering. That's right. So that's why I really feel like the Tunisian revolution was the most successful, because it It was the first, it happened naturally, and, you know, we were lucky because it didn't lead into severe violence or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. And as often the case, it's a matter of, uh, you know, a level of corruption that becomes unacceptable and there are all kinds of other exactly. reasons, but it was corruption that was at the heart of the frustration and anger. Exactly. Yeah, so, well, I, 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 again, I just really enjoyed your uh, brotherhood so much. And I, and as I hope I've been able to convey in our conversation, how, how, you know, heartfelt and how nuanced and how, and how, um, I just hate to use the word mature, but it just feels like such a, um, you know, like you've been doing this a long time. <laughs> My hat's off to you, and congratulations on the Academy Award nomination. I've been asking some of the filmmakers that I've talked to about that. How's this affecting your your future, uh, your outlook? Your, I mean, obviously it's a validation on some level, but yeah, is it opening some doors? You feel like you're you're getting places that you might not have been able to as quickly as as you are now, or? I mean, I think it's a bit hard to tell right now. It's what, you're only about two um, weeks into this, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I think what's really, I mean, honestly, what's really beautiful about the nomination, like you said, it's really validating because the journey of the film, as I mentioned earlier, how it started and, the, you know, me learning to listen to my instinct and have faith uh, in my filmmaking abilities and having the drive or courage to follow that instinct that at some time seemed impossible. The fact that it's being recognized on this platform is super validating to me that this is the path I need to take, which is I need to listen to my instinct as a filmmaker, and when I tap into it, that's when I can make the most powerful films. Yeah. So 
it's really, really touching and, like I said, really validating. So I'm very grateful to be in this position. Yeah. Well, my, my congratulations to you for the film Brotherhood and as well as I look forward, hopefully, in a very short period of time, you'll come back and we can talk about your newest work. I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So um, Thank you so much. You're very welcome. The film, again, is Brotherhood, Academy Award-nominated film, short live-action film. Uh, we've been talking to the director, producer, and writer of, the, of Brotherhood, and that would be Miriam Jobert. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.